Hi, and welcome to the Camera Report podcast, brought to you by waterfootfilms.com. I'm your host, Sean Malone, and today we are in conversation with Miami-based documentary filmmaker and director, Billy Corbin. Billy first gained notice in the early 2000s when his first documentary, Raw Deal, The Question of Consent, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. He followed that success with many others, including the critically lauded Cocaine Cowboys in 2006. Today, we speak to Billy about his film, The U, one of ESPN's 30 for 30 films that chronicles the championship history of the University of Miami Hurricanes football team. The Canes won four championships in a span of eight years, from 1983 to 1991, but not before shaking up the college football establishment with their enormous talent, salty celebrations, and well-warranted swagger. Billy, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I think my brother put it best. I was talking to him about your film, The You, and he said, before I watched this movie, I knew Miami was good, but I didn't realize they were that good. Well, I was in single digits. You know, when my, I went with my dad to the Orange Bowl and watched the, you know, the Miami Hurricanes play throughout the 1980s uh, and into the 90s, and they were just getting good at about that time, and they just kept getting better. And even as a, as a little kid, when you're not so hyper-aware of, of all the rules of the game and, and uh, what's going on exactly, there was an awareness uh, in me at the time watching these young men play that there was something extraordinary going on here, that there were these almost superhuman feats of, of athleticism and, and that, that people were responding to in a, in a real uh, a visceral way. And, and back then, too, they had a tough schedule. They'd open a season against FSU, Oklahoma, Nebraska. You know, like three, three ranked tough teams. So it wasn't, you know, they didn't start with like, you know, play some Catholic girls school, you know, just to, just so they get an easy win and they, you know, get, generate enthusiasm in the fan base for the season <laughs> and all that. You want to generate real, real enthusiasm, come out and play a game, make it competitive, make it exciting. As exciting as it is to see them whoop somebody 40 to eight or whatever. Uh, I think it's, it, it's more exciting when you have a, a, a matchup of, of teams that are competitive with each other and and that's what it was like back then well in the film you you highlight to a certain extent the the celebrations of the players you know the dances and and really the cockiness did that make an impression on you as a kid like the showmanship of everything Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was, because as a kid, you get absorbed by the spectacle and the pomp and circumstance. It's not just the, the sport and, and the game and the football. It's the whole thing. It's, it's the, like I said, it's, it's the venue. It's the pageantry. It's the smoke and running out of the tunnel. It's the, the cheerleaders and the, you know, the halftime shows and, you know, w- what would happen when some guy would fly through the air or run at a cheetah-like speed, you know, 90 yards down the field, score a touchdown, and then do a backflip, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it that that makes an impression. I mean, it was like... Or, the, like George, being, or the George Jefferson dance, right? Yeah, exactly. It was like being, you know, like, it, you know, as a kid, I, I loved going to the circus, and I loved to, to watch the acrobats, and, and there was certainly that level of it. And, I mean, you were literally watching the greatest show on earth, and you felt that in every conceivable way, both based on the, the, the level of athleticism and, and how spectacularly they played the game, but also how they expressed themselves and celebrated. And, and it was a time when, in, 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 in sports, particularly in college football, where the personalities of the players had a part in the game, played a role in it. And eventually, of course, 
uh, thanks to no small part to Miami Hurricanes players. They changed those rules to take a lot of the, the personality, I think, out of the game, which I think is, is, is for the worst. Now, now you actually have boring college football games. You just have a boring BCS title game. I mean, literally, I mean, that, that title game was the cure for insomnia. If I could back up just a little bit and talk about you and, and, and sort of your development as a documentary filmmaker, I, I'd like to ask you why documentary films? Because, I mean, looking at your resume, your, your CV, I, you know, it's, it's one documentary film after another. Why, why does that appeal yeah. to you? It's funny because you talk about development as a documentary filmmaker. All the development has occurred while we've been producing documentaries, meaning there was no training or development in nonfiction filmmaking prior to our first documentary, uh, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, which uh, world premiered at the Sundance Film Festival uh, exactly 11 years this month, um, 2001. And we were trained, uh, as most, I think, film students are, you know, in, in, in screenwriting. I was actually, that was my major at the, one of my three majors. I triple majored at UM. One of my three majors was film screenwriting. You know, I remember they had the three tracks, you know, you can go production, screenwriting, or business. I was in the, the screenwriting uh, track. So I, I was trained essentially in storytelling, um, you know, in screenwriting. And, uh, you know, I took editing courses and I took uh, uh, cinematography courses and I took, you know, but I never took uh, so much as a documentary appreciation class. Always loved docs. Um, as a genre. Some of my favorite films of all time, even growing up, were documentaries. Films like, uh, for instance? Well, uh, uh, the Paradise Lost uh, movies, the, any, most anything by uh, Nick Broomfield, particularly uh, Heidi Fleiss, Hollywood Madam. They're uh, usually in the true crime, uh, you know, also his Eileen Brunos documentaries, uh, Nick Broomfield. M- mostly stuff in the I Love Roger and Me. Uh, so mostly stuff in the in in the true crime uh, genre. That was always a genre that intrigued me. I always read nonfiction books. Didn't really enjoy fiction uh, literature so much as, as as nonfiction. I feel like there's so much to learn and there's so much that I don't know that I almost feel like it's uh, not to belittle the art form, but I almost feel like it's a waste of time for me to read. Uh, fiction, always been a news junkie. That goes for David Sipkin and Alfred Spellman, my, uh, my co-founders at Rack and Tour at our company. Um, we were just, we're news junkies. It was the mid to late 90s. And we were, so, we were at the dawn there of the digital revolution. Um, you know, it, it was, that was the start of the democratization of the production side of film. Later, of course, we would see the democratization of distribution by way of the internet. But that was, that was where suddenly cameras we're getting to be of a quality and of, at a price point where lay people could have access to equipment where you could produce something of reasonable quality. So what we're starting to see, we're starting to see in the late 90s were features shot on DV that were being uh, you know, picked up, licensed, and, and distributed theatrically even. You, know, you had, of course, the Blair Witch Project, which... You know, unfortunately for the for for the poor programmers at Sundance and film festivals around the world, suddenly every schmuck with a video camera thought they could make a movie after, <laughs> after the Blair Witch. You saw movies like Time Code, the Mike Figgis movie, 
And so uh, my producing partner, Alfred, we were working on this Super 16 feature. And, you know, he's dealing with the, the budget. He kind of handles the business end. I handle the creative end. So he's dealing with the budget. He's dealing with the film labs, which screw everything up all the time and then blame your DP for it. <laughs> and then the, the DP's pointing his finger at the lab. The lab's pointing his other finger at the, at, at the, uh, at the DP. And, um, you know, <laughs> so we're dealing with those frustrations, dealing with the extraordinary expense of film stock, of, uh, you know, of, of the, of development of, of telecine on and on and on. And Alfred's like, well, we should do something on TV. That's where it began. And so I said, well, I started to analyze, um, the marketplace and, 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 and more to the point, the types of movies that were being produced and distributed in, in, in DV. And I noticed something, I noticed that when the format itself, that it was being shot on DV was melded into the concept of the story of the, of the movie, it seemed to work better. For example, you know, Blair Witch, which is a sound footage, you know, a, a concept. Or in, in, or in Time Code, I don't know if you remember this Mike Figgis movie, it was a quad screen, it was four screens, and they did it like in these continuous shots, and they would, they would just kind of sound mix from one to the other, and it was all done in these long shots. You couldn't have done it on film, meaning they had to use video. Even the name time code, I mean, they really wove that into the concept and the theme Absolutely. of the film. Absolutely, into, yeah, into, into, into the fabric of, and, and the concept of the, of the movie. And so that worked. Where, where it didn't seem to work was when it was just a drama or a scripted story that, was, that, that, that for budgetary purposes or whatever was, was shot on DV. Because people, even if you're not a, you know, a sort of a film literate individual or a techie, I think average audiences will sit and watch something and they know it, they don't feel the warmth of film. They know it doesn't, you know, it's not right. It's cold. They know it doesn't look like Mary Poppins, you know, you know what I mean? Sure. That's what they know. So, so I, I thought that I, I, so I said, I said, you know, it'd be a great genre for digital video for DV. I said, would be documentary because if it's verite, you know, you can shoot for as long, you know, film stock's cheap, I mean, video stock, rather, the videotapes are cheap, you can shoot as long as you want without having to continue to swap, you know, swap reels, and, or if you're doing an interview, you can sit down and do extended interviews again, you don't have to worry about the expense of the video, or, or having to, you know, you swap out a tape, it takes three seconds, but that's after your shoot for 90 minutes to two hours, and uh, so, like, the docs would be a great thing, so that's how it kind of happened. It sounds like a lot of successful filmmakers, you saw the reality of the market and you adjusted to it, and then the story goes on from there. Absolutely. Getting back to the you, I wanted to ask you, you interviewed many ex-players, you know, ex-coaches, so many different people involved with the program in different ways, and I have to ask you, what surprised you the most while you were making the film? Was there anything that came out of those interviews that just really came out of left field for you, or did that happen often? Well, what I think I know, I mean, obviously, they are grown up now. They have kids of, of their own. And in some case, the case of Alonzo Highsmith, he's got kids grown up playing football, one of whom is at uh, the University of Miami. And they look back on these years very fondly. And uh, most compellingly, and this is a kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a staple of our docs at Rack and Tour, they're unapologetic about it. I don't think that was surprising, but I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, by that, let's say. It wasn't shocking, but I was pleasantly surprised, I'll put it that way. And that's to say that you know, they were, they spent uh, you know, some of the best years of their life playing some of the best college football in history and being vilified by the nation's press uh, <laughs> for it uh, and at the same time. And so while they do laugh off some of the, the behavior and the shenanigans as, as youthful indiscretions, they don't apologize 
They don't apologize for it. And a lot of people observe that in their, in their attitude. They kind of maintained that swagger, which is to say that, you know, the way that they were carrying on uh, was not an act. It was part of their, their personality. The swagger was part of who they were as people and, and a testament to where they came from and uh, the struggles of, of them and their families to make better lives uh, for themselves. And the fact that, that they worked really, really hard. I, there was, there was a, a stereotype about, you know, the team being undisciplined. You know, that's why they would act out and, you know, all these shenanigans. It's because they were undisciplined. Quite the contrary. This was one of the most uh, disciplined, hardest working, hardest training football teams ever. And I think that was evidenced by their success. Uh, on the field and that a record, uh, uh, not only in college football, but <laughs> they go on to the, the NFL uh, and continue to be some of the, the strongest, most powerful, famous and successful players in, in football. Can you talk a little bit about moving away from the players a little bit, the interview with Howard Schnellenberger? I don't know quite how to approach this, just to say that when he speaks about leaving the program, like his regret is really palpable. And um, I wondered if you could just talk about interviewing him and your experience with him. Coach Schnellenberger is not only an extraordinary football coach, he's an extraordinary man. And, and that bears out in, in, in everything in, that he did with his life, whether it was successful or not. He's done it uh, and accomplished it with a great deal of grace and style and respect. And he just, you know, the, the program that he built at, uh, at FAU, this was his dream at UM, was an on-campus stadium. Uh, that was a part of the reason why he left, uh, according to him, were disagreements with the, uh, you know, the AD and the administration about control over the the football program, the athletic department, and specifically an on-campus stadium, which he believed that if the University of Miami got behind that concept in 1984, that they could have made it happen. Obviously, today, you know, you're not going to get Coral Gables or the property behind, you know, behind something like that. Hey, they built that convocation center. You know, they built that basketball uh, arena, you know, in, in recent years. But he believes in 1984. If, if the university got behind it following their, you know, that first national championship in January, that they could have made that happen. And they were determined for whatever reason to not make it happen, but he made that happen in his career, in his lifetime at, at Florida Atlantic University, which I think is, is an extraordinary uh, accomplishment and, and capper to, to an incredible uh, decades and decades, by half a century in, in, in football that, that he spent from Bear Bryant to uh, Don Shula and the, and the, uh, the undefeated uh, 72 Dolphins to the first national championship in the University of Miami and, and, and on and on. And so um, he had always through the years been very frank about, <laughs> about the mistake he made <laughs> leaving the University of Miami Hurricanes. I, I think, in fact, I think in his last press conference, when he retired this uh, last year, last month, in fact, at, at SAU, uh, he said it was one of the stupidest decisions in the history of man or, or something <laughs> to that effect. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not far off. He did, he did refer to it as, as one of the all-time stupid decisions ever made. The guy probably, I mean, they would have won national championship after national championship. And what had happened was he had a son who was very sick, uh, who passed away. And I think he was in his 40s. This is a month or, or so prior to the interview that we had scheduled with him for the U. And right away, I contacted the, you know, the, 
the PR person at the, at the university at FAU. And I said, uh, I said, Hey, I, you know, I'm terribly sorry for, for coach's loss. You know, I, I wanted to know if you wanted to reschedule the, the interview or postpone it or, or what have you. And, and she's like, no, nope, it's okay. We're, we're on schedule. It's still like a few weeks away or whatever. And we're okay. So, which I thought was, was incredible. Cause I, I thought we were going to, I thought we were going to lose out on it. I really did. Um, and, and so I think he was in a bit more of a, of a pensive and candid place. So instead of, instead of making a joke about it or, you know, or declaring it a, one of the stupidest decisions in the history of, of sports, I think he was a little more uh, uh, thoughtful and, and feeling, you know, about it. And, and vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the few moments where he, you know, he looks down at his, at his hands, he looks down at his, at his rings and that was, that was, yeah, that was one of the very few moments of vulnerability in, in, in his interview and probably in the, in the entire movie. And I, I know that everybody was like, you can practically hear the sniffles from the crew uh, in the background of the shot. It was just, a, it was just very emotional and very, and, and it was certainly one of those moments, you know, the dolly is moving and I'm standing behind the camera and, and, and he said that, and, you know, you just kind of get out of the way of your subject and let them answer the question as long as they need. I was like, well, that's, that's his last line in, in his segment <laughs> of the movie. And, and it was really, it was, those are the moments obviously that, that we wait for, that we work for and that we hope for. And, and it was very moving. You just talked about the dolly move during that interview, and I actually had a question about that. You approach the filming of the interviews in kind of a unique way. I mean, you're you're moving, you're sometimes moving the camera, sometimes you're snap zooming, and I wondered, are these all in camera things that you're doing? And if so, how how do you remain confident on set as a director? Like this will cut, you know? I know this will cut, and I know we're not going to move in a moment that's that's awkward to move in. Oh well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that it's confidence. I mean, I'm nerve wracked the entire time. I mean, you know, there's, there's a level, I mean, on, on, on a dock, you know, you're, you're not storyboarding. Sure. Um, you know, there's only so much planning that can go in and prep that can go into it. And then you're just there in the spur of the moment, hoping that you were gollying in rather than out at that time, you know, that they said that or that, uh, you know, so dramatically you, you never know. Uh, what you're going to get, um, or how it's going to cut together. I mean, obviously, we knew that we were going to have a lot, of, a lot of interviews. We knew that we were going to have a lot of archival game footage, news footage, photographs, etc. That were, that would help us smooth over any any rough patches. I mean, that's what you you really have to uh, to to rely on a great deal is your is your your B-roll and your your archives and and uh, uh, really the, the mandate was. Uh, everything was in camera, by the way. Uh, everything was, in, with the exception of the, of the color correction. Uh, everything, you know, there was not, there was no post uh, tricks in terms of pop zooms or, or you know, mimicking camera movement. Um, we were on a dolly. Um, we were just gonna rock, rock and roll in and out. I would kind of signal if I felt something coming on. I would at maybe the start of a question. I'd have the dolly go back to one, you know, and then move in. We would do some of that for the most part, which is kind of a in and out uh, motion, and at the discretion, of course, of my operator, who's uh, my DP, to utilize the pop zooms or or or, or quick pan or quick pans. And if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying in order to have this style, you're sacrificing maybe like five or ten percent chance you may not grab something exactly that right way at that right moment. Exactly, but you know, we, 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 you go for a mood and you go for a style. So the man was, you know, the dollying in and out, and then the, you know, a certain kind of lighting that I wanted, and then I wanted the subjects to look directly into the camera on this project. And we do that for each of our projects. The first thing that we do is, is we, we devise some kind of 
aesthetic that is appropriate and unique for the subject of that of that project. For example, you know, this was a college football movie. We do Cocaine Cowboys, which has a very cocaine, cocaine-y kind of aesthetic. You have a, a rapidly moving dolly that goes from like a profile and curves to a, uh, you know, to, to like a medium close, uh, you know, a portrait. And then we had, uh, that was a very fast dolly move. And then we, we faded to white instead of fade to black. You know, we had that Jan Hammer, uh, uh, Cynthia 80s, uh, underscore men of the U. I wanted music that was a basically a cross between NFL films, you know, John Williams, Aaron Copeland, Americana orchestral, crossed with Miami booty music. The music is credited to Honor Roll music. Can you talk about that group of, of folks? Yeah, Honor Roll is a collective of musicians, songwriters composers, arrangers, conductors, producers, most of whom, I think, in fact, possibly all of whom, are alumni of the University of Miami. So here, they really want an opportunity to do something orchestral and then be able to remix it. And, and we had a lot of fun doing that. And there's a, I think the vast majority of the musicians and the orchestras that we used uh, were all contracted out of Frost School of Music at the University uh, oh, of Miami. Awesome. Yeah, and, and we always try to create opportunities. I know how tough it is, uh, particularly in in the arts and in, and in film. You always try to create opportunities for for uh, friends and alumni, and keep it local too. We're Miami Beach based, and and we stayed down here to kind of stake a claim for ourselves, and of course tell a lot of Miami centric stories at that. So we like to you know like like to give back wherever we can. The other question I had about music was the theme song, which is the very beginning, which is like really really catchy, and <laughs> as as the <laughs> As the doc started, I, I thought, oh, this must be some old U Miami song from that era, but, but it's <laughs> yeah. not, right? It's a new song, right? Yeah, so what we, what we did was, is at first I had that mandate about the style of the score and, and how it was going to be that, that blend of, of you know, NFL films, orchestral meets, uh, meets Miami bass music and how that would evolve over the course of the of the movie as well. It would start out during the Schnellenberger years as being something a little bit more traditional. And then we'd funk it up, we'd 808 it up with the, with the Miami booty stuff as it progressed. But we also wanted to have a kind of, we had two scenes in the movie. There was two songs. We wanted to write a new fight song for the Hurricanes and write a new alma mater for the University of Miami and use those themes uh, interchangeably depending on, on what the mood of the of, of the scene was. And so to that end, I wanted to, to write this, you know, what, what, as you put it, sort of sounded like a classic Miami bass booty shaking two live crew song. And so uh, we came up with what is now an extremely popular ringtone for Hurricanes fans all over the world, you can imagine. Uh, and uh, it took them a few tries, the honor roll guys, it took them, I think it was three different beats we went through before that they, that they created from scratch um, before we got the overall feel that we were going for. And then they were like, well, who should perform it? I was like, there's only one person who should, <laughs> who should perform this. I was like, that's Uncle Luke. So we sent him, we emailed him the beat, and he's like, I love it. And at the last minute, we threw out on Twitter, like, anybody around this area in the studio at this hour, come by and sing the call and response part with Luke. And so a bunch of people, dozens of people just showed up all of a sudden um, on, like, 30 minutes notice, we did the song and that became the overture, if you will, for the movie. And it appears throughout in different remixes and guises. And then uh, I wrote this, uh, this theme, what we called the uh, hurricanes hymn, 
which is our, like I said, our alternate alma mater song and becomes the more kind of emotional orchestral melody of the movie. And then it's performed in a pop kind of uh, a power ballad in the end credits by a, a world-renowned jazz singer, Nicole Henry, who is also a graduate of uh, the University of Miami. What's funny about that, though, is that she graduated with a degree in architecture uh, from the <laughs> University of Miami and now has become literally a world-famous jazz singer. A previous guest on our show talked about narration. He's a documentary filmmaker, and he talked about narration often being used as a crutch. And you avoided narration completely, and I wondered, do you have similar reasoning? On all the projects, in fact, we've never, we, we've yet to use a narrator. Right. <laughs> put you that way. You don't want to um, put we, yourself we, in a corner. You might need a narrator someday, yeah. Billy. <laughs> yeah, we've made that. Yeah, I don't want to say we've never. You, we we have yet to use. We have yet to use a narrator in any of our our projects. I pride uh, myself on that. Crush is a good name for it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick, like narration in in any movie. Uh, it's a gimmick. Uh, narration very often doesn't work. And if you're in a movie where, the, and, and I, I'm speaking for dramatic films as well, if you're writing and you've got, oh, voiceover, the character's going to have a voiceover now, it, it better be clever. It better be essential. It better be, if, if this voiceover were not in the movie, this would be a completely different movie, or we couldn't tell the story, or, I mean, it better be absolutely relevant and essential. I mean, you know, Apocalypse Now. You can't mute that narration. You don't have you don't have much of a movie. It was kind of it not only told the story; it was part of the poetry of the of of the visual experience. Or some of Terrence Malick's movies too. Sure, and, and then look at Blade Runner. <laughs> after after the studio got a hold of it, it was like, well, we don't know what's going on here, so we need narration. So they bring him in, and the narration is basically like Harrison Ford telling you what's going on in the scene. Like he's like, "That's me. I'm walking down the street." I'm eating noodles now. I'm, I'm like, what, what? Like, how is this enhancing the experience uh, at all? I try to avoid it. I, and, and mind you, we do so many interviews. We've got hundreds of hours of interview footage. So technically, we do have narrators, but it's the subjects of the of the of the movie who are who are narrating uh, the story. I, I, if, if we didn't name our company Raconteur, my other uh, the other name I, I liked for it was First Person Productions. And my line is, it's not about they and he, it's about I and we. Those are the types of stories we like to tell uh, when, when people are, are relaying their personal experiences. I try to get many times, let's say, a surrogate voice, like a commentator interview that I say is a surrogate voice for, for me or for, you know, or would work in the place of narration. I think um, there was a couple guys in, in the U, particularly Dan Lebicard, who was, a, who was alumni of the University of Miami, um, and knew a lot of the players, but also as, as a sports journalist, wrote stories that they didn't always uh, appreciate, obviously. Um, but he, he became kind of the objective voice that provided some of the commentary and the information that there might have been gaps in in the story. Well, speaking of how many hundreds of hours of interviews you did, how long did this project take you? How long were you working on it? I think almost two years. Intensively, all-time, full-time? At least a year of that was was intensive and exclusive, but we did we did overlap with the start and finish of other projects that we were working on. Um, I mean, gone are the days that independent filmmakers can work on one project at a time and release a movie every two years or three years. I mean, it's it's 
it's, uh, I don't want to say it's about quantity, not quality, but you, you certainly need to keep working. You know, I mean, there's not a, it's, it's become a bit of a service related industry where we get paid for our work on a particular project and the back ends, if they ever existed, certainly don't exist anymore. You know, where you're like, you can write a hit song or make a hit movie and, and live on the back end, you know, live on the royalties. I mean, you have to keep building the brand, keeping your name out there, telling more stories and, and keep working. So yeah, we weren't able to just sit around for two years and work on nothing but the U, but at least a year of that uh, within that, that, that time frame. Um, certainly the, the latter part of it was, was intensive and exclusive uh, to get it to get it delivered in time to ESPN. Well, with uh, the U, speaking of ESPN, you did have ESPN's involvement. And I wondered, how did that come about? And then what type of uh, collaboration was that? And then what, what resources did they bring to the table that you maybe didn't have without them? Uh, great question. We approached ESPN uh, with the idea of doing a feature doc about the championship history of the University of Miami football program. That's where it began. I believe at the time the project was, uh, the temporary working title was Hurricane Season. And we pitched them. They loved it. We decided to focus more on a, you know, a team of the 80s story since it was going to be really tough uh, narratively to get to 2001, that fifth national championship. So we decided to focus on you know, the U as the team of the 80s. Also, of course, we changed the title from Hurricane Season to the U. So we pitched ESPN films. And at the time that we did that, there was no such thing as far as, I mean, we were aware of 30 for 30. Uh, that, that hadn't existed yet. Uh, that hadn't been announced yet. And it was almost a year in to us working on the project that we got a call from our friends at, at ESPN Films who said, listen, we're like tomorrow, we're announcing this 30 for 30 series where there's going to be 30 docs um, by 30 different filmmakers about the last 30 years of sports history to celebrate ESPN's 30th anniversary. And we're like, cool. And they're like, we want the U to be a part of that. And we're like, even better. Uh, particularly when we heard some of the other filmmakers that were involved uh, in the series, and we thought that was a pretty good company, and um, it was pretty pretty flattering uh, to to be included, and particularly because the U, the ultimate thirty for thirty, um, in terms of concept, because ESPN went online um, in the fall of 1979, which is really when our story starts. You know, Schnellenberger coming to the University of Miami, so it really is this ideal. You know, a piece of sports history of the last three decades. So uh, we were we were thrilled, and they were thrilled. And we, in fact, at the time, they thought all of the thirty for thirties were going to be one hour long. So we started to get into this discussion about would we do a one hour version of the movie, and what would that look like? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, that would look like Howard Schellenberger, and that would be it. That would be, and they're like, well, what about Jimmy Johnson? I'm like, how do you get Jimmy in there? You know, in one hour. <laughs> so we went back and forth, like, oh no. So we decided they decided to give us a two-hour block. But as it turned out, a lot of the other 30 for 30s were an hour, you know, 90 minutes or two-hour block. So so it all it all worked it all worked out. We weren't the only one that was like a feature uh, doc in the in the series. But ESPN. Well, first of all, they're a Disney company, and I would think that everybody's in original uh, you know initial impression would be they got to be very uh, you know, sort of involved or overly involved or, you know, uh, intrusive and it could not be further. Yeah, exactly. Could not be further from the truth at ESPN films, you know, which is a division within, within the network. But we also worked with a lot of the folks at, at, at ESPN as well, um, at the network proper. And part of the mandate for the 30 for 30 series was that it was the, that a lot of the filmmakers or most of the filmmakers had a personal connection to the subjects that we were documenting. And so they wanted it to be the individual visions 
of the filmmakers that would be, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to create this uniform formulaic kind of biography series or, you know, or A&E kind of, they wanted each one to have its own character, personality, style, uh, music, uh, uh, aesthetic and feel. So, so to their credit, that was their mandate was to be hands off. Um, and they got involved really when we needed them, when we needed help with something, they would give notes, some of which were extremely uh, helpful. Um, they were, they were very supportive. And then those are the pros. The cons are you got to do everything by the book <laughs> as, as, as independent filmmakers, you know, I, I, my, my line is, uh, limitations breed creativity. Yes. So we have to get creative. You know, we obviously, you know, fair use is, is very useful, you know, to us, but you can't do fair use at, ESPN, a Disney company. So you have to, everything's got to be cleared. I mean, every note of music, every still photograph, every uh, frame. Every logo, every every brand. Yes, everything has to be cleared. 100% of every, even if it can't be cleared anymore, even if we use some local Michelin commercial that Jimmy Johnson appeared in, in the eighties, in you know, we get everything, everything had to be clear. So that's a challenging thing uh, to accomplish, particularly when I, like I said, we're, we're, we're accustomed to, you know, you work with like Magnolia who's distributed uh, basically all of our, our previous documentaries uh, and some of our and present and future documentaries, and they're cool. You know, they're an indie film distribution company, so they know what a fair use letter from an attorney looks like. They know, you know, the E and O companies are cool. Everything. ESPN, you've got to, you've got to dot your eyes, cross your T's, and then go back and do it again. Which, which again, that's not a bad thing, but it's a challenge, you know, for indie filmmakers sometimes. In your case, though, it, didn't ESPN's involvement make that more of a hassle than a restrictive obstacle? Did they provide any resources to help you deal with those legal challenges? Oh, of course. Well, of course. I mean, listen, first, they, they, there weren't any legal challenges, but the, the clearance issues, I mean, if, if we could not locate uh, and get clear chain of title and license a piece of material, it could not be in the movie. So we would have to swap it out or cut it out or find some way to, uh, to, to work around it. Keeps everything legit. I get it. They're obviously, they're a bigger target than we are, so they don't want to expose themselves. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, you know, they're not going to sue me. What are they going to do? Take my Toyota? I, you know, <laughs> so, so they're they're going to go after ESPN. So I get it. Believe me, I'm very I'm very sympathetic. You know, I, I we, we've we've encountered all you know all sorts of craziness as documentarians of people saying, "Well, I have the rights to this or that," when they when they don't. And and so I I get it that we have to be careful. But like I said, it 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 gets to be a challenge. And then of course, when people hear that you're working with or for ESPN, then they see dollar signs. So they they don't understand that they don't understand that we're an independent production company who who gets you know who's getting paid a fixed amount by ESPN to produce this project and so we're tr- we're still trying to get deals wherever we can but when people hear ESPN they're like ching you know I want I want $500 for you to use my photograph for five seconds. And it's like, uh, I, I don't think we can swing that because if we do that for all 500 photographs in the movie, we're going to be broke. You know? <laughs> so, you know, and so it's like, so, so there's various things like that, but, but I got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised how great they are collaborating. And it is a collaboration. There, I don't think we've ever had a, with the exception of like the running time, we've never had a mandate from ESP, you know, you have to cut this or you have to do that. It's been a legitimate collaboration, very, very supportive of, of our vision and our style, how we want to want to do things. And listen, to their credit, it's been a huge success. I think 30 for 30, well, we want a Peabody for it, all, all, you know, the, the, the network and, I and the saw filmmakers. That. Congratulations. And, yeah. 
Thank you. And, and so whatever, whatever they did, they did it right. It was extremely ambitious. ESPN Film is a very small division. There's, it was all of like four, five, six people in the entire division. And there they were working on 30 movies almost at the same time, or at least overlapping with 30 different filmmakers all over the country. There's not a movie studio anymore, a major studio that makes 30 movies a year you know, or any, anymore. So, so it was extremely ambitious. They had their vision, and that was to support our vision and all the filmmakers' visions. And I think it paid off for them because I think it's one of – it didn't get as much attention as I expected from, like, the indie film and, like, the documentary, like, nonfiction world. But I got to tell you, it employed – 30 filmmakers and their crews for over a year. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty significant event in the world of independent film and documentary production because, and, and it produced 30 really compelling pieces of nonfiction filmmaking. And, and so I, I can't say enough about ESPN and, the, and ESPN films and their commitment, uh, you know, and Bill Simmons idea for this and, 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 and their commitment to, to these projects and, and the filmmakers. I mean, you just, you can't say, you can't say enough about it. Well, Billy, I, I disclosed to you earlier that I'm a graduate of University of Miami. But yes, I, I apologized. <laughs> and you apologized to me. <laughs> um, but I'm also a graduate of the University of Arizona. So I was wondering, oh, well, wow. why, why not the 1994 Fiesta Bowl? I mean, why isn't that in there? <laughs> well, there's a few things that, that, uh, that we that we skipped. It was the championship history, so you know we we ended it after the uh, you know the ninety one national championship, January ninety two, and and, uh, and we did kind of depict um, and montage the the decline of the program over the course of uh, of the nineties, but we didn't we didn't have enough uh, time or space for every bad game uh, that that occurred, that occurred in the nineteen nineties. There were many of them. You know, I only ask because University of Arizona football pretty much had one glory moment, and that was it. So. Well, it's, it's funny you should say that because, you know, when we premiered, it was Alabama's first, uh, it was right after the Heisman Trophy ceremony in December of 09, which was Alabama's first Heisman Trophy. So they all, some of our highest ratings by like region came from Alabama because that's where people were watching, you know, were glued to their TVs for the, for the Heisman Trophy. So, uh, so they were all sticking around to the end to see their, <laughs> their grand, grand moment uh, the year after our national championship. So they took to the forums pretty quickly and said, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you left they ended it just before. Well, yeah, so everybody's got a Arizona, Alabama, everybody's got a beef, but uh, it's okay. You, at, at least you can still revel in, in the glory that was that fleeting moment of great, uh, great Arizona college football. And I, and I will continue to do so. <laughs> What's the best advice you can offer new or young filmmakers? Oh, get a real job. Uh, <laughs> try to produce something that can't be bootlegged. Uh, <laughs> try to try to produce a, a service or a good that people have to have to purchase. Um, well, uh, relevance, 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 relevance. That's what I. That's what I. I lecture. I lecture relevant filmmakers' job is to find a good story and don't screw it up. Uh, that's the, the glass half full version would be find a good story and tell it well. That's true if you're making a nonfiction film or a scripted piece. You find a good story and then tell it well. And I think, you know, the, the question is, I mean, that's easier said than done, obviously. So the issue is how do you accomplish that? I say R-A-S, relevance, access, style. Number one, relevance. 
is anybody going to give a crap about this story? <laughs> let's, let's keep it relevant. Let's know the marketplace. So when we did Cocaine Cowboys, um, when we made the decision to, to make Cocaine Cowboys, it was in a time when Scarface just had its 20th anniversary DVD release and outsold like uh, E.T. and Jurassic Park on DVD combined for Universal Home Video. Uh, that was when Michael Mann announced he was finally going to go into serious pre-pro for the Miami Vice feature film, the best-selling video game of all time at that moment was Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which took place entirely in an 80s Miami milieu. Um, so we, we were realizing that the, you know, the 20-year nostalgia cycle for all things Miami in the 80s was coming around again, and that was the environment in which we said, okay, this is why a, a documentary about Miami in the 1980s and the cocaine trade and how narco dollars built the city, that's relevant. And if you don't know, if you don't have your finger on the pulse of the people, you don't know what's relevant. You've got to know what's, what's in the news. You've got to know what people are talking about and interested in when it comes to uh, politics, celebrity, sports. Know what people care about. Know what's relevant. Yourself, you know, relevant. I always say Alfred Hitchcock. He's dead, but is he relevant? I say so. You have filmmakers to this day in, who, who, who are inspired by his work uh, and, and tell stories in the style that he did. Then you take somebody like, I don't know, no offense, but like Vanilla Ice. He's alive, but is, is he relevant, you know, to the conversation or to the discussion? Or, uh, you know, he appears in a reality show every once in a while, but probably, probably not uh, completely relevant to a sort of pop culture or political, uh, contemporary political discussion. The worst thing anybody can say about anything is that it's irrelevant, you know, and it's a terrible thing. So that's number one. Is anybody going to care? I'm going to invest somebody else's money, my time, my blood, my sweat, my tears. Is anybody going to care? about this when I'm done. It's got to be relevant. Then access. Access is like the secret to life. I mean, access to anything, access to a script, access to equipment, access to actors, access to crew, access to a compelling interview subject, access, whatever, you know, financing, distribution, access, access, access. And the last one is style. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. So you have to bring something to the table with respect to this great, you know, the, this good story that you found and, and how to elevate it and tell it the best way that you can. So, so that's, my, uh, that's, that's my advice. Billy, uh, we love your movie, The You. Thank for you. Our, for our listeners out there, how can they get to the movie? How can they buy the movie? Absolutely. Just, you come visit us at uh, CocaineCowboys.com. It's our uh, Rack and Tour website there. You just go CocaineCowboys.com and redirects you to us, and you can find all, all of our projects, uh, including uh, the U and, and associated swag uh, you can, uh, that you can purchase there at CocaineCowboys.com. Okay, awesome. Again, we love your movie, and I appreciate you coming on the show, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks again to Billy Corbin and to you for downloading this episode of The Camera Report, produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. For more episodes of The Cameron Report, please visit waterfootfilms.com and click on the podcast link. Subscribing is easy and free. Also, search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and then like us to see updates. And we want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at waterfootfilms.com. This is Sean Malone. Thanks so much for listening.